Well, welcome, friends, to another episode of The Conversation, my opportunity to sit with interesting people making a difference in our world today and just talk about life, what's going on in our world. Today, my interesting guest is Kathy Elliott. Kathy is a licensed mental health counselor who has counseled individuals, couples, family members for over 40 years here in Rochester. She was the founder and executive director of Agape Counseling for 35 years before her transition to private practice where she still works today. Kathy did her undergraduate work at Roberts Wesleyan and did a master's in English and another one in counseling from SUNY Brockport. She's trained scores of lay people and led workshops and classes in various churches and continues to be active in the Christian community today. She and her husband, Bob, have three adult children, five grandchildren, and they've been active members in the Browncroft Community Church where they met and married 44 years ago. Kathy, it's great to have you. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Rob. It's really good to be here. Well, I guess I should ask you first, and some people will want to know how you're doing, how you're, you and Bob are doing, and just your family, all things uh, relative to the coronavirus. Are you guys doing well? We're doing well. We've all stayed healthy. I think we've tried to at least minimally uh, comply with all restrictions so that we would stay healthy. It's mm-hmm. good to be a little freer now, and you know, we got a good taste of isolation and say, you know, that's that's not good for any of us long term. I know. Well, good. I want to talk to you about that. And um, let me just launch in as we think about, I. we don't have to talk just about the coronavirus, but it's such a big part of our, our, our moment. And you have talked to people, of course, for your entire career about anxiety. So I'm wondering, is it your sense, is our society, maybe I should, you know, it's not just the coronavirus, but now maybe too, is it becoming more anxious generally in your opinion, in all these years? And if so, why? I would say absolutely. There's more anxiety. Um, in years past, there was a little more certainty than there is now. There's never absolute certainty. But with uh, upheavals in our politics, um, in uh, causes, in family breakdown, um, changes in education, and particularly now with the coronavirus and unknown what's going to happen. You know, with that, many people lost jobs or don't know what they're going back to. So when we feel that we don't have power, we don't have any control over what's happening, anxiety is kind of a natural result of that. And I think broken families, kids, don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be safe? Where are they going to be? So I think from a Kind of a, an early age, just uh, many, many kids, um, not just city kids, uh, kids all over the country just mm-hmm. are uneasy because of family, but also because of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, can they go back to college? Are they going to be able to get a job? You know, so I think a different kind of anxiety right now, but over the last number of years, uh, more and more uncertainty and a crisis in relationships, I think, really creates almost a epidemic of anxiety. So I know there's a lot of anxiety disorders, which are unique. Each one's unique to its own um, um, path. Uh, but when you think of just generalized anxiety, which I'm sure is much of your work as well, are there, you know, some successful strategies or what have you found is the most successful strategies 
that you've um, worked uh, with uh, or in with people that you've worked with? Okay. Um, I think, first of all, being able to recognize it and call it what it is. There seems to be an aversion to saying I have anxiety. Uh, people don't want to call it that. But when we can name something, we can then deal with it. I think there are some here and now kinds of strategies with um, centering and stabilizing and paying attention to our senses so we can calm down, creating that calmness inside so that we can think. And I think it, that helps all of us to be able to do those kinds of things. But I, I like to work also underneath the symptoms. Anxiety is a symptom, and they're usually reasons why there's anxiety. That's not a natural thing. We're not born with anxiety, but it's created because of dissonance, because of things we can't resolve or things we can't control. So I'm a trauma therapist, and I like to, to look underneath the surface to see, are there some wounded uh, places that are contributing and so that's a, a deeper kind of work to work on anxiety. So when you say trauma therapist, because I don't know that in all the years I've known you, we've I've asked you this or heard you say it in those terms. Um, I'm guessing you mean like um, whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, um, the death of uh, a loved one, or what? What do you mean by trauma? Uh, a woundedness that that does not get resolved. Um, so trauma is an intense experience. I think pretty typically we can handle one trauma in our lifetime and manage and go on. But if we have multiple traumas that don't get resolved, they kind of pile up. And after a while, they inhibit our ability to to function very well. And when we can't function, then we get a little more anxious or the cousin of that depression. I see. Mm -hmm. So just to get so people can know you a little better, those who don't, you know, what does your interest... Um, or even calling, if you want to call it a calling, you've been doing this for 40 years. I don't talk to a lot of people that have been doing one thing or, you know, one area for 40 years. So that's great to have you to ask this. But what does it say um, about you? I mean, how did you find your way into this work? Good question. I, I think our backgrounds are uh, where we come from has a lot to do with interest and develop and opportunity. Um, I think I was about eight years old when I felt like I became a social worker. And by that, I mean, we had foster kids in our home and in our neighborhood and in our school. And I felt like I became an advocate for those kids who were brought into homes and didn't, um, they had to make it adaptations. So my heart, I think, was drawn even as early as that time, both to God and also to sort of the underprivileged. And I think that just kind of grew in me over time, and I wanted more training and more ability to to listen and facilitate uh, growth or healing experiences. Mm -hmm. So it started actually when I was a kid, and I didn't think I was going to be a social worker. I was going to be a teacher, which I was for 15 years, uh, but then transitioned over into counseling. But I felt a pull you know, in that direction of just doing something, creating something or opportunity for people to be able to talk and to find safety, mm. uh, emotional safety and healing. And do you, this is kind of a funny question, but I mean, when I, I think about listening to you say that, do you, do you counsel anyone in your family or is that sort of an off limits thing? I mean, well, the right answer is that's an off limit thing. I see. Okay. <laughs> yes. 
So um, it's it's hard to counsel people in your family I or see. friends because there's a lot to lose. You can mm -hmm. lose a relationship, and it's hard to be totally objective. I, see. I think I listen well, and I think I'm prone to make observations. Right. right. It's no <laughs> sin to give a piece of advice. That's right. I see. So another question just I just thought that would be helpful for people to get to know you. You know, if you could give your 30-year-old self um, a piece of advice now, you know, at this season in your life, um, what do you think it would be? I think I would say work a little less and have more fun mm. and spend a little bit more time with your friends at developing those deeper relationships. Mm. Boy, that's great. So say a little bit more about that. I mean, not only about your own life, I guess, but when you think about our our culture, our community, you know, what does it say that we need that advice, I guess? Yeah, we, we need to have um, a certain amount of lightheartedness and get away, take take the Sabbath, so mm. to speak, from our drivenness in our work to focus on something else, give our body and our mind a rest. Uh, God's wisdom was rest every seventh day rest at night. Mm. And sometimes we get so caught up in I have to perform or I have to serve these people or I yeah. have to accomplish this that um, that we don't take enough time. So I would I would say for me, um, I went, might add to that more solitude, mm. more time sitting alone and listening, yeah. just listening to God. Mm. What is, I know, you know, you've been a longtime follower of Jesus. And so talking about spiritual life, spiritual health is, is a common thing for you. But because of the work that you do, um, it'd be helpful, I think, for some people to know what is the relationship between emotional health which uh, and spiritual health? Are they the same thing? They're not exactly the same, but they're very closely related. You know, we have the directive both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a pretty high calling, mm. actually. And if emotionally we have not learned really how to be loved or how to love or how to have compassion, it's hard to mature spiritually into that place where we love God with all our heart and we love our neighbor as ourself. So I think, I think following God, knowing the Lord, knowing scripture is great input for healing and growing emotionally and being emotionally more mature, uh, developing, growing up, being able to have compassion, handle conflict, say what I need, what I want, have a preference, that kinds of thing. The more I can do that, the more I can really relate to God and the spirituality and be uh, a love my neighbor as yeah. myself. So I think they're they're really intertwined. One really informs and develops the yeah, other. It's interesting to hear you say when you think about that passage, uh, the great commandment, as you say, which is you know, uh, the word love, I mean, there's a lot of dimensions to the word love. It's not some of its feelings, some of its emotions, some of its commitment, you know, it's it's a number of things. But I guess it's it's it, it's significant to think that what it means to um, be spiritual, to be in a relationship with God, it, the center word there, the central idea is love, then it would be pretty hard or hard to do that well. Mm -hmm. If you have um, 
I don't know, blocks in your emotional life or brokenness in your emotional experience, even though it doesn't mean God doesn't love you or mm-hmm. me. But that's a, that's an interesting insight. And especially in a world, as you were saying a few minutes ago about trauma, where people are, um, you know, more and more, I don't know, I mean, I've only lived one lifetime, but it seems more and more emotionally um, damaged, wounded, mm-hmm. even in, you know, functional ways. And I mean, I don't mean people that are, you know, um, uh, you know, been taken out of, uh, you know, the game and, and there's still people that are working and functioning, but so much damaged emotional um, life. It, it, I wonder, I've never thought about it, if it has an impact on our ability as a community or communities to to engage in, in deeper ways with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard a number of people over the years say, you know, I love God and I quote scripture all day long and I'm still depressed. Mm. And I think, Quoting scripture is very cognitive, yeah. and our healing process is very emotional, and it's getting that that truth into where we've been hurt, and so it can bring healing at a deep level. Mm. So I have a lot of compassion for people that we might say are not very mature spiritually, when I know their backstory is one of uh, perhaps not being in a home that was very loving mm. or being wounded by by people when we have those wounds you know we're driven often by fear for survival right rather than love i think we're driven by one or the other god calls us to love and the more healing we find and the more truth of scripture that meets our heart the more love can become our motive mm. i wonder if do you think i've heard people talk about that societies cultures, let's just say our society, can almost be thought of as mature or immature. In other mm-hmm. words, in the same way you would diagnose or a, a person like myself or a family or a, a, a couple, as mm-hmm. you do, is it? do you think that's even a sensible thing to do, first thing? Can, can you look at a society and say they are immature, mature? And if so, would you say that our society is regressed or I mean what's your what's your opinion yeah that's an interesting question um I haven't really thought about that but if we measure maturity by generosity by self-sacrifice by being stable by knowing how to calm ourselves down and then we look we look at our society and we say what drives people success and money and power those are not necessarily high emotional values. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, look at the leaders that people are following right. and the behaviors and that sort of thing. And we say, is that mature That's good. behavior? Yeah. So I wouldn't characterize a whole society, but I would say there are pockets of yes. society that we could say, this this seems to be at an adolescent level. That's and true. this one seems to be kind of an infant. And yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. What, uh, back to this thing of emotional maturity, um, what's your, um, this is a basic question for you, but I think it's helpful for us who are trying to learn about um, ourselves. What's the relationship between um, anxiety and emotional maturity? Okay. Anxiety can become a disorder, which when it's a disorder, it's, um, it's more difficult to manage and it's kind of pervasive. But let's leave disorder out for a minute and say we all experience some level of anxiety because we don't have control over everything. Right. 
some level of anxiety is good because it can motivate us to meet the deadline, to push a little harder, to run the race faster. So uh, I think having a certain amount that we can manage Mm -hmm. is healthy. So when we get more than we can cope with that overwhelms us, that um, we become less mature. So where does that fit with spirituality uh, or with knowing God? That's where part of coping is recognizing I can step back, I can look beyond myself and say there's a God who loves me, mm-hmm. if that is in fact a belief. Right, mm-hmm. right. There, there is a reward for me ultimately, and this is a journey through this world, but loving God and serving Him is a higher calling. That can help bring some peace because finding that calmness within ourself, I think really is a... I tell people that's a core skill, life mm. skill, to be able to take the deep breath, uh, to focus, to step back and get a perspective. And when we can do that and we can put truth, spiritual right. truth in there, I think it really helps the anxiety. Mm-hmm. I know some uh, people will say, well, this is a sin. I shouldn't have anxiety you know, because the scripture says, you know, don't worry. Well, a certain amount of anxiety is is normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Scripture is telling us, you know, if we go on with those verses in Philippians, think on these things. And giving us one of the key strategies for dealing with anxiety mm-hmm. is move your mind away from what you're perseverating about that's creating this feeling mm-hmm. and focus on something that's going to calm you, something that's more uplifting, something mm-hmm. that's... Um, that's getting you away from from the perseverating or the obsessing, which where we focus is going to create the feeling. So, you know, I know your work, I'm sure you work with Christians and non-Christians, but that, that last insight is so interesting. Um, you know, that, that verse of scripture um, is that itself, what you just said in the last 60 seconds, you know, um, you know, is that a key strategy that you that you that you encourage people? I guess Christian or non-Christian. Maybe it's more instinctive or easier to with a Christian. But to you know, um, uh, you know, Philippians four, wherever that is, that you just mm-hmm. talked about. You know, to to focus mm-hmm. on the um, whatever is you know uh, these other things. Whatever's true. Whatever's lovely. Whatever's of good report. Is that mm-hmm. is that a, a key strategy? For it you? is a key strategy. And sometimes I'll have people say, "Well, that negates." than the seriousness of my pain or my anxiety. Mm. And I would say, I think it doesn't negate it. It just says, let's calibrate it so that you can manage, mm. you know, the amount of anxiety that you have or grief or or whatever else it is. Mm. And instead of focusing on how bad it is or how much it hurts, focus on this is going to end in a few minutes, I'm going to get past this, or I'm going to be going on to the next thing. I'm going to start to look at that and move my mind to that. In fact, that is a key strategy. Mm. Distraction, we call it, mm. if it's immediate, distract yourself. Mm. And that's good for anxiety. That's good for addiction. That's good for a lot of things. So mm. Change your mind. Look somewhere else. Because what we think about does create those feelings. Now back to this question of, um, or on the on the point of scripture, um, let's say you're working with Christian clients, and, uh, and perhaps it works with uh, non-Christian clients as well. But 
when, when you think about whether it's your, your, your professional work or even your own advice to friends or your own practice, even your, for your personal life, um, I know some people think, um, I don't know, there's so many different points of view, you know, that scripture can be seen as something that's sort of a check the box or it's, you know, there's all these uh, different ways in which we understand how scripture actually works in our life. But say a few words, if you can think of them about how you see scripture, um, how it can be used as a, as a tool or an instrument or an experience that can help us in our growth and, and maybe even relative to anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, great focus. Scripture is truth. It's God's truth. It's his letter to us written through other men, other people. But where we focus, if we focus on um, a phrase in scripture, a psalm, and let it you know, occupy our mind and think about the words and think about what the context is and think about the feelings, that tends to, it tends to bring our, um, I'll say it grounds us physically and mentally. And it brings us to a point of sort of settledness and say, wow, I hadn't thought of that before. And when we couple that with saying, God, speak to me or show me out of this what truth you, you want me to see, and then we listen. It's, scripture helps us quiet our mind when we meditate on it. Now, we can read Scripture to check the box, to right. get through the history uh, or whatever. That's not useful other than information. <laughs> right. But for focus uh, internally, wow, uh, gratitude, that idea, I'm so grateful, Lord. We, we see that in the Psalms. And when we start to feel, what am I grateful for? And we let our body feel it and we sort of take it in and leave it there. It becomes um, say a deposit in our soul in a yeah. way, and we can keep adding to that. And the more we do that, the more that resilience is built. Yeah. And so uh, we're less likely to get as anxious because we we know it's going to end mm -hmm. and, and we have... Uh, built up that, I'll say resilience, uh, probably a better word yeah. for it. You know, the great writer who I'm sure you know, Walter Brueggemann, um, I remember he said, and I think it was a commentary on Psalms, but he was talking about kind of what you were saying. And he said, you know, talking about how, how can we engage the scriptures? How do the scriptures engage us? How do they at times, you know, some, some people would say the Bible is not just the truth about God. It's the truth about you. Mm -hmm. And those two things go together. The more we learn about God, the more we may learn about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. As right. you said, the, the Bible is God's truth. But he said, um, one of the things he said that was, I suppose, encouraging a deeper, more thoughtful approach to Scripture, a less hurried approach to Scripture, is he said, we can't know the answers until we've better understood the questions. Mm -hmm. And um, and I thought, what a great way to say it. You know, the questions about life, the questions mm -hmm. about my own pain, the questions about maybe um, what I think about the world. And that scripture is an opportunity or could be an opportunity, maybe uh, the, one of the best places to take the opportunity to um, ask, to, to learn about the questions that uh, before we even get to the answers. So in that sense, the Bible, you know, isn't an answer book as much as it is a questions book, maybe a questions and answer book. And um, 
uh, I think that's very helpful, but it's not mm -hmm. always the way we, we approach it. Mm -hmm. So speaking of books, um, I wonder if there's a book that you've read. It wouldn't have to be recently, but it could be. You know, I, sometimes I've had this experience and you'd say, this is a book I'd really love for other people to read, not because, you know, you love this author, but I mean because of its insight. Okay, I thought of a couple. Um, I'll mention the one that's been a little controversial, but a book that I have loved is The Shack. Mm. And that was um, 10 or 15 years ago when mm -hmm. that that hit uh, the market. And I love the allegory. I love the, the language, the, the emotion in that. And when that came out, um, I would buy those books by the case mm. and have them available for people. And I was giving it away. I said, you need to read this. And I, I heard, I've read many testimonies, but I heard many people say to me that I found a different view of God. I think, and that's what some people found uh, unorthodox, you know, the way that was written. Right. But I, I understand God better as a result of reading that and and the interaction, the dialogue. So I uh, I like that book a lot. So before you go to your next book, I, I did read that book, you know, whenever it came out handfuls of years ago. I know it was a big book and controversial for the reasons that you say. But for those who don't know it, uh, the few on this <laughs> podcast, you know, it's a, it's a short sort of an allegory or a parable of sorts um, that is talking about this man... Um, Paul Smith, I think is his name. Is that right? Um, Mac is the book. Oh, I, I mean, but the I mean the author. Uh, Paul, William, Paul William Young. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so it's his, um, I guess it's this this allegory and about an interesting story of the, the death of this young girl. But in some ways it is, as I've heard him say, um, a way to talk about his faith, a way to talk about God. So that being said, um, He's, I guess some of the controversy was, you know, it's does this mean equal that? And, you know, people mm -hmm. kind of missed, I, some, I shouldn't say, missed mm -hmm. the idea that it's, it's supposed to, you're supposed to take the whole thing in and then ask the question that you're asking, what does it say about God? So if you had to say that in a sentence or two, in other words, what either correction um, or, I don't know, modification or clarification or encouragement about God does the book give or did it give you? I think it makes, it makes God more real in the sense that there's dialogue, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's Jesus, and there's God all played by characters who kind of represent some of the characteristics. But the, the compassion, the probing questions about justice, mm. um, uh, I don't want to take time to, yeah. to go yep. into that too yep. much, but I thought it was very pro provocative, the yeah. part that I liked, I think, the best was when God said to Mac, he's judging him, he said, you can you can take two of your children to heaven and not the other three. You go pick which ones. No, no, I can't, I can't. Mm. And he said, I can't send them to hell. And God said, neither will I. I love every one of them. But just the way that was written, we could see mm. the compassion of God in that he's not about wanting to destroy people, but he's wanting people to find life and, and yeah. fullness. Yeah. So it's it was an unorthodox way of writing. Yeah, well said. Yeah. But but it was powerful in saying God loves us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why some people love Tolkien and Lewis and uh, 
you know, uh, Banyan, I mean, right. I mm -hmm. mean, so <laughs> I like what you say. Uh, not everyone likes that or gets that, but I do think you're, I, I, I agree with you. So what's your other book? Um, one I read just very recently, um, Maybe You Should Talk With Someone. This is a book written by a therapist about her own therapy journey and four clients sort of composite where she kind of takes us through their story and her work with them, written very humorously, but a lot of counseling principles in it, a lot of uh, funny things. And uh, I've heard people, th therapists say, read this, then you're going to understand me better. Yeah, and you're going to understand the process. And a family member of mine who read that said, who is in therapy, said, I read things in there and understand therapy better, things I've never heard before. And so it's, it's a, not a hard read, but it's mm -hmm. a, an eye-opening read. What's the author's name? Lori Gottlieb. Okay, mm -hmm. nice. And then the other one, um, The Choice. I don't I know if you're familiar with that. Mm. That's a memoir written... By, let me find uh, Edith Eva Eger, hmm. and it's a memoir about her uh, experiences in Auschwitz and her escape from there. Interesting. And then she became a therapist, and it's her work with many different people. How she works. Still with alive. Them. She is still alive. Hmm. As of 2017, when the book was published, she's in. She was um on staff at a university in San Diego. Interesting. And still in private practice, I believe. Wow. So she's in her 90s. I was going to say, she That's must an be. amazing woman, an amazing, inspiring book. Did you read um, Night? No. No? Wow. Okay, <laughs> put it on your list. Not that that's a counselor, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the great Ellie yeah. Poisel, the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize winner. So here's a question I most wanted, and I shouldn't say most, but I'm so interested to ask you. I'm going to assume you've watched Brene Brown's. Oh, lots. Okay, so I didn't, you and I never talked about it. For those of you who don't know, I don't know, there's probably not many, but Brene Brown, the um, sociologist professor in Houston, but, you know, otherwise known as, you know, celebrity at large, <laughs> who's um, been all over the place and written many books now on, on courage and vulnerability. But she gave this talk um, in 2010, I think, around that time, uh, a TED Talk in Houston on vulnerability. And I have personally, I watched it when it came out, and I've watched it many times since. But I wonder, what is it about that talk, um, 18, 19 minutes, in your opinion, that has made um, it so popular, that has captured people's imagination so much? Yes, it, it has. I listened to it. As soon as I heard about it, a friend said, oh, you need to listen to this. The talk itself is very engaging. She's a, a storyteller, so she's a very interesting speaker. Mm -hmm. But she's talking about vulnerability that is essential for connection. Um, we are starving for connection. Part of the anxiety you know, that you were talking about earlier exists because people are not connected. They don't know how to get connected some with themselves or with other people at a deeper level. I mean, we can rub shoulders, we can have uh, lots of discussions and that kind of thing, but to, but to be able to talk at a level where I feel, you get me, mm. you've got my back, you get, you understand, there's something that happens emotionally when that happens, but it takes vulnerability. Mm. She's a shame researcher, and some of her earlier work, it was all about shame, but then this vulnerability sort of popped out of that. And she said, you know, shame is our fear of being known, whereas vulnerability is our of, of willingness 
to be known. Mm. And we need that vulnerability really to experience joy and mm. creativity and the fullness of life, really a sense of belonging. Mm. So because I think as a, as a nation, maybe as a world, right. we're starving for connection. You know, God built that into us, the need yeah. for connection, to, I think, so we would seek after him, but he also made us relational. And when we don't have that, uh, we our self-esteem goes down mm. and we function less well. Yeah. So I think because that was humorous, um, it got good press, it caught on and it became like wildfire. Yeah. And then her other books sub yeah. subsequently. And now she has podcasts, she has yeah. she's uh People quote her all right. over the place right, right. in sermons, in colleges, in businesses. And right. So I think it's it's popular, though, because it hits that nerve. You know, the one thing, many things I liked it. So, you know, I'm not a, you know, a evangelist for Brene Brown, uh, and that's not my point in bringing it up. But I, I think she did strike a chord. And one thing that she said that I, I'm sure you have thought about and you knew intuitively but it, to me, it really was kind of a new insight. And she talked about vulnerability, about wholeheartedness, about why we tend to numb our emotions for obvious reasons. It's painful. Mm -hmm. So if I don't want to, I'm numbing the, whatever it is, the shame or the guilt or the embarrassment or the judgment. I'm going to numb things that we all do, whether it's because we just watch TV or we drink, whatever. So I think it's very human nature to numb those things. Mm -hmm. But the insight that was really was profound to me was she said, you cannot numb selectively, Right. which I thought I wanted to say, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> and what she says is that if you choose to numb those negative emotions, you also will numb joy and, and peace and, um, and um, the positive emotions that we so desperately long for. So I don't know how that hit you, but to me, I remember that just stopped me in my tracks. Yes. Because it said, either you're going to sign up for this growth and vulnerability, um, and, and you, it's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Yes. And I wholeheartedly agree, just to use her word. Yes. <laughs> it's absolutely true. And when we numb and we can't feel compassion, we can't feel joy, it's pretty hard to have the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. And when we're striving for that, because we're, not, we're supposed to have that, we're supposed to be good Christians, and we don't, then we get anxious. Mm. And some of those, some of the time that we can't, we have numbed things from years ago sometimes. Mm. That's, that's where, what's under this anxiety? This anxiety is a right. symptom. Right. Um, things have been numbed that need to be surfaced yeah. in order to be healed. That's a painful process. Yes. But... It's worth it. You get through the other side, you mm. say, I can feel joy again. I can feel a lightness. That's healing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it makes me, when you mentioned earlier about the Psalms, it doesn't have to be just the Psalms. I think all of the Bible engages the mind and the heart and in some places more than others in the sense of the um, which one of those two things. But the the I think there's such an invitation in the Psalms in particular to go places we might not normally mm -hmm. want to go which is, to use Brene Brown's words, I mean, the negative emotions, right? I mean, most of the Psalms, as you know, as a, a lifelong student of the scriptures are, you know, lament, and they're, and they're, and they're gritty, and they're, 
they're they're not PG kind of thing in the sense of you think, well, why is that there? And I think she this 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 helps us to say, well, you have to if you want the full experience to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind and strength, as you said. If I want to be in contact with God, and let's say if my life was a five-point you know thing, I want all five points to be all five contact points with God. Well, then it includes those negative emotions as well, which then gives us some sense when David or the writers, the other writers, seem to be pouring out their not just their joys, but their anger, their pain, their frustration, their judgment. There, you know, um, that's part of how we connect with God as well. That's right. Yeah. So feelings are connection points. That's right. Feelings are cues to pay mm. attention to. Hmm. What's going on? I feel sad or grief or joy. Pay attention, and that's how we connect with other people. When mm. we share that, and they share, that's how how we have connection. Mm. So when we have those numbed, and we don't do it. We don't have those contact points with other people. Mm. We feel the loneliness. We mm. feel the gap. So you, you've said some of this already and all this as we might, we'll get closer to winding down. But just because I know you and I know you're a, a lifelong or largely lifelong follower of Jesus. And not everybody that does the work that you do is a Christ follower. And doesn't mean that everyone that does your work has to be a Christ follower. Just like, right. you know, that's true in many professions. Um, all truth is God's truth, or there's a lot of ways to say that. You know, God, God, uh, all creatures are His, and um, they all—they're all made in the image of God. Every person, but, but since that is true for you, how would you say your faith in Jesus has and does um, influence the work that you do? Okay, I think from—I'd um, say in an early age. I mentioned at eight, I became a social worker, but I think I also became really tuned into God at that time. I was fortunate to have a dad who, man, a few words, but honest, character, calm, a hard worker, really a model of someone who could be trusted and loved. And I think I internalized that as my view of God. Mm. And so I have... I've been very fortunate. I think I was really blessed mm. with that. So my foundation of God is loving and is steadfast, has been there, and allows me to stand on that, to be calm, to be confident in that, and therefore kind of not only rest on that, but offer that to other people. Mm. Um, as you said, not everybody I talk with is a believer. A lot of people aren't. But... Everybody's spiritual. Right. And often people will ask questions, or I will say, are you in good terms with God? Or if I don't know, I would. And people will go from there, that right. I used to be, or I want to be, or whatever. Mm. And so when we have um, opportunity, I like to open up the com conversations so people can explore that. Mm -hmm. doesn't happen in every right. with every person or in every session by any right. means. right. But it gives me a confidence, even if this doesn't go well today or even with that person. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm a terrible person or I have failed. It means God gave me that much time with that mm. person, and he will see mm. that other people come into that person's life for influence. So I don't know if this is an inappropriate question to ask you, but like, do you, because um, I don't know who's listening, but do you, not after your sessions, do you pray for your clients? 
I do. So how interesting. I mean, yep. I mean, obviously not everybody does. Yes. What, a, what a beautiful thing me, mm-hmm. that you do that. Yep. Yeah. And I wouldn't say everybody all the time, right. but certainly people, when clients come to mind, I know they're going through a particular stress, surgery, just a difficult time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say, God, be close to that yeah. person. And sometimes people ask, you know, could we pray? Before I would we imagine that, and I don't know, it could be wrong, but that almost every person, Christian or not, certainly Christians, I would be, would probably be good. But I don't know that I've ever met a person, even a non-Christian, that would say, don't pray for me. I mean, even not necessarily in their presence, maybe they're uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but that I've never yet to meet a person that is not appreciative. I would say almost 100%. Yeah. I've had a couple exceptions mm-hmm. where... Prayer represented very negative spiritual experiences. Right. And they said, no. And they were almost bad memories. Right, almost frightened. Yeah. But most people, they said, well, it can't hurt. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Um, but there's something about even asking or doing that, that yeah. it's a connection with that person. Absolutely. You care enough to ask. And sometimes it's the caring more than the mm. prayer per se. Right. That it's, it's a connection. Yeah. A connection point. And when we build enough connections, you know, over time it builds more like a like a a, a strand, you know, right. so it's not just a, a right, you're building a, a bridge, a, building a bridge a and a cable, I guess. Cable. <laughs> yes. And mm. and maybe I only get one strand in that for that person. But right. God, thank you for the th- three months, the three right. years uh, uh, that I had to mm. have influence in that person and have the privilege of working with that person. So we're almost out of time, but as a final question, because you know me, you know us, um, and of course you're just a lifelong or largely lifelong follower of Jesus. What do you think are the important lessons, if there are any, um, for the church, um, not just our church, but the church, you know, as we emerge, as we emerge, if we do out of the coronavirus, what, what are our lessons? What can we learn? I think some of the things I would say, Rob, you have said in some of your uh, messages and some of the, the things that you have put out, that we are hands for God to use. Mm. And let's let's be responsible. Let's be respectful of limits. But let's be generous. And let's see where we can make a difference, even though it's different in fact, in some ways, it's it's delightful that we're spending less time in, in the sanctuary and more time out yeah. with other people. I know. So I think the lesson is when we have opportunities that are crisis, and we have two crises going on, two pandemics, really, with, right. with pol- political upheaval as well as, as the virus. Right. When we have these crises, move in and mm-hmm. make a difference and love people, be generous and compassionate, and I think the church can organize that in a way yeah. that individuals can't, yeah. and it can give it much more bandwidth. Yeah, I agree with that, and I hope that we are doing that, and we will do that mm-hmm. as our culture begins to emerge out. Mm-hmm. We think, uh, we'll see, mm-hmm. as of the taping of this. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. It's been a rich, uh, a privilege to sit with you, and and I hope we can do this again sometime as we move forward. Thank you for being here. And friends, thank you for joining us and look forward to talking with you again as we continue the conversation soon.